Good morning. Welcome once again to another service in person. And if you're watching online, we want to welcome you as well. Before we get started today, again, in our series on the book of Acts, I want to remind everybody that we have a business meeting coming up, annual, our annual church business meeting on November the 21st, Sunday, November 21st, immediately following our service. So we're in this book, as Jackie just mentioned a few moments ago, we're studying in the book of Acts, and if you've been with us from the very beginning, you know that we've been studying this book for the last 21 weeks, 21 Sundays of gathering together to study this incredibly relevant book of the Bible. And today we are in Acts chapter 17, and in this particular chapter, there are some very, in fact, significant uh, implications for us today. And the reason I say this is because, and believe it or not, and sometimes we lose sight of what I'm going to be talking about due to the fact that sometimes as, as Christians, as people who follow Christ in, and part of the church, we feel that there is great animosity against the Christian faith. We feel that from the media, perhaps, or we feel this from various institutions of higher learning, or perhaps even from neighbors in our general population. We, we feel this animosity because we have faith in Jesus. But can I make a statement here that I think is relevant and incredibly important? While you may feel animosity because you are a follower of Christ from other people, make no mistake... There is an increasing spiritual hunger that is taking place in our world today, in our society today, in our city today. There, there are people with a spiritual searching in our culture right now. In fact, I would submit to you that there is an uptake of people talking about spiritual things. Now, I base that comment on a recent research that the Pew Research Group released. They released this study... And they've compiled this data over the past 10 years that revealed spiritual conversation among people is actually increasing. There are more people that are interested in and talking about spiritual topics. There are more people in our world today that are desiring something more in their lives. In fact... What people want most of all, what people want is something that brings stability into their life and centers them. And one of the points that this research has discovered is that people are less interested in religion, but they are more interested in spirituality. Now, when we talk about spirituality, how people define spirituality is found in this statement. I want an inward center is what the Pew Research found. This is what people say. I want an inward center. I want an inward peace. I want a deeper sense of meaning and connection with something sacred. That is what's happening in our world today. And though we feel sometimes animosity against the Christian faith, can I tell you, church, there are people who are seeking and looking for the dynamic of connection to something sacred. That's what the Pew Research Group has discovered. That's what's stirring in our culture today. 
And what this says to me is that people are recognizing that something is missing in their lives. What they're hoping for and what they're looking for is missing in their life. There has to be something more. Something is absent in their lives. People are looking for meaning. People are looking for substance. People are trying to sort through a lot of various engagements and involvements, and they're beginning to realize all the stuff that is available to me in my life, there still has to be something more. Why am I not at peace, they ask. Why do I feel this void in my life? And on top of that, people feel that they're not reaching their fullest potential in their life. It's interesting, the COVID pandemic has created a reevaluation of priorities in people's lives. As, as you probably read in the news reports this past week, many, many people are leaving their places of employment in order to rethink their lives. They're, they're trying to figure out what to do with their lives in the last half of their lives. They're, they're thinking about the future and they're trying to create a balance in their lives. So today, right now in our society, people are more willing to dialogue about spiritual realities. What is true? What is really going on in the world? What is authentic? What is the core meaning of what life is really all about? Which brings us now to Acts chapter 17. And in this particular portion of scripture, this scripture that we're going to study today helps us to see how Jesus understood culture. And I, as I've said before, by the way, if, you have, if you've missed this, I think the book of Acts is one of the most relevant books that we can be looking at today. And so here we are in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and verse 17. Look what it says in these verses. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Now, Paul, on, on this particular missionary journey, his second missionary journey, is now in Athens. And if you remember, from Acts chapter 16, since he had the vision to come to Macedonia, he has traveled to Philippi, he traveled to Thessalonica, which we talked about last week, the church that was started in the midst of a riot. And now after a brief stay in Berea, he is now finding himself in the great city of Athens. The city of Athens, which at that time was the intellectual capital of the world. A city with tremendous cultural and educational influence to impact the rest of the world. 
Athens is a city where culture was being formed. Athens is the city where ideas were being debated, where philosophies were being developed and discussed among the most educated people. And from Athens, with all of its discussions and all of its philosophies, what happened in Athens began to permeate through the rest of the society of that then-known world. But here's what I want you to notice. Here's what I want you to notice about the text that we just read. It says in verse 16 that Paul reasoned in the synagogue, which by the way was his method of engaging the gospel message. Wherever he went into the city, first of all, he would always go to the synagogue first. And he would find the religious people there, the Jewish religious people, the Gentile religious people, people that perhaps had shown some kind of interest explaining to them explaining to them that Jesus, especially to the Jews, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But then verse 17, you will notice, also says that he, Paul, spoke daily in the public square. Now this is really important for us to understand. This is really important for us to grab a hold of. Because when it says that Paul spoke in the public square, it reveals something about his understanding of the gospel. What this reveals, what this reveals is that Paul sees the gospel not something that is to be held privately or personally. It is not something that we have a personal peace about, but he sees the gospel as a relevant message that can be debated in the public square. So the gospel isn't something that once we receive it, we hold privately, but it is something that can be engaged in the public square. Now, when you read public square, immediately in our culture today, you might think of the Yorkdale Shopping Center or Scarborough Town Center or your, you know, your local strip mall, maybe the Rogers Center, Queens Park in downtown, Mel Lastman Square in North York. We think the public square. That's where the location for the public square is. But this statement is different when you understand the dynamics of the city of Athens. The public square in Athens is actually the agora. And you can see from the picture here how it is, how it is found in the middle of the entire city. The agora was the cultural center of the city of Athens. And in the Agora, now, there was no TV broadcast. There were no news stations broadcasting in, in the city. There were no newspapers printed in that city. There certainly wasn't any internet. But in the Agora, in the Agora, that's where you would find heralds People who would pronounce, using their voices, who would pronounce the news. And people from the city of Athens would come to the Agora to listen and hear what was happening in the world. So if you wanted to find out firsthand what was happening in the city or in, in, in the, the surrounding area around Athens, 
You would go to the marketplace. You would go to the agora, the public square, and that's where you heard your news. And in that same place, political ideas were debated in the agora. The political ideas is not found on Facebook like it is today. You would go to the agora to, to debate your political ideas. Banking, commerce, vendors were set up in the agora. It was in the center of the city, and all commercial transactions happened in the agora. Now, here's what we need to understand from verse 16 and verse 17. The ideas, the cultural formations, the commerce that was engaged and formulated in the Agora would flow out from that center part of the city into the surrounding regions and into the various communities. So the concepts that were discussed, the ideas that were debated, the debates that happened would ultimately shape the philosophies of the people that lived in the city and then it would begin to permeate beyond the city of Athens. So all of the new debates and all the philosophies and all the political changes that would transpire would begin in the Agora, and into that place is where the Apostle Paul goes to present the gospel. And he goes there to reason and to debate the philosophers and the educators. He reasons, he talks, he pronounces, he proclaims in the Agora. Now, when you see the verse, the word in verse 17, the word spoke, that word spoke is somewhat of a vague and simple description of what really is taking place there. And it doesn't provide, I think it was a bad translation, but it doesn't provide the meaning, the deeper meaning, the advanced meaning of what Paul actually accomplished in the center of that city. The actual concept what is transpiring here is the one of reasoning and debate. And in particular, if you can remember this from school and your time when you were being educated, in particular, the Greeks were very famous for Socratic reasoning. And so what was transpiring in the Agora, when the Bible is talking about Paul reasoning and Paul speaking, it's talking about this formulated debate that is taking place in the Agora. Now, the debate, the Socratic reasoning, is different from the debate that we see in our culture today. When you watch debates on television, for example, you see people moving through talking points and you see people talking above one another and voices overlapping one another. You can barely understand or hear what they're trying to say or what points they're trying to present. People are lobbying insults one to another. That's, that's our, somewhat our perception of what debate is. But that's not what was happening here in the Agora, when there was Socratic reasoning happening. When the Bible says that Paul is reasoning and speaking, 
what Paul did was not preach, and he didn't stand up on a pulpit with a blowhorn yelling at people, what, this is the truth, you need to embrace it. That's not what you see happening here. Paul was engaging in Socratic reasoning. And one aspect of Socratic reasoning was to ask questions. It was to ask questions so that you understand where people are coming from. Why are people thinking about or embracing the worldview that they have in a particular way? What are the personal philosophies, beliefs, and values of people? And once you understand the personal beliefs and values of people, then you can engage with a conversation from that standpoint. That's what Socratic reasoning is all about. So when the Bible, and you're reading this in Acts chapter 17, when the Bible talks about reasoning and Paul reasoning with people and Paul speaking with people, and it's happening in the Agora, it's in reference to Socratic reasoning. You learn from the other person first. You try to understand what are they believing? What do they believe? What are their values? And listening carefully, you can respond from what they believe, from their standpoint. And you present your viewpoints formulated based on their standpoint. And that was Paul's method in the Agora. The Apostle Paul goes into the very center of the culture and he shares the gospel message using the Greek's method of, of Socratic reasoning which reveals something, this, this is really important for us to understand, which reveals something about how Paul understands the gospel. You see, Paul believes that the gospel has what it takes to challenge the most dominant ideas in culture. Paul understood and believed that the gospel is not some weak philosophy to be tested, but that the gospel is strong and powerful. And even at the very center of culture, in the Agora, where culture and people meet, the gospel can engage and it can influence and it can challenge any humanistic idea. That's how we need to understand and approach the power that is in the message of the gospel. We don't have to be ashamed of the gospel message. The gospel message can stand on its own in the midst of a humanistic culture. So you may ask me right now, well, how does that impact me? Or how does it impact us? What does this mean for us? Listen. It means that when opportunities arise, we should engage the people of our culture. Whether it's in business, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's as a student or through arts and music or by talking to your neighbors, we can engage 
culture. Not by yelling at people, not preaching against culture. That's not what Paul did. And that's not what we're called to do. We are simply called to engage and to participate with people. We don't hide because we are Christians. We don't privatize our faith. This is what I believe, and so I'm just going to keep it to myself. No, 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 no. We don't avoid the marketplace. We don't avoid engaging people. Because God has for us, in that place, a purpose and a reason to engage. In fact, Paul shows us that we need to engage and be presentable to our culture. Because in our culture, we should not shrink away the upheld truth of the gospel message. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is powerful enough to stand on its own and to challenge any physical, uh, philosophical ideas that are found in culture itself. It goes on to say in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, these words. Look what happens next in these verses. He also had debate with the Epicureans, you need to underline that, and the Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. So what's happening in this verse particularly is that Paul is being mocked for standing and pronouncing his beliefs. And did you see what the text said? The text said, what is this babbler trying to say? They called him a babbler. And babbler literally means a seed-picking bird. That's what they're calling him. He is a seed-picking bird. Have you ever planted grass? Maybe on, in your grass there was a bare spot and you took some seed and you planted the seed, you spread out that seed, you put fertilizer on it, you watered the seed. But what is frustrating about planting grass seed is that many times birds somehow find that grass seed and they start picking away at the seed that you had just planted. That's what's happening here. The insinuation is that Paul is like a bird picking up seed. That Paul doesn't have an original idea, that he's just picked up his ideas here and there, picking up a little seed here, a little bit of seed there, and then throws them together and comes up literally with this new philosophy that he basically picked up from everywhere. Essentially, that's what they're calling the Apostle Paul. They're calling him a bird, a seed-picking bird. That's what it means to be a babbler. So here are these culturally educated, elite people mocking Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. 
Now, what's so ironic, this is really ironic, is that history, if you read history, 300 years later from this moment, Christianity sweeps through the Greek society and completely changes their cultural ideas. These intelligent people, these, these brilliant people on the planet who called the gospel re- ridiculous, over time, these people, a few hundred years later, became prominent believers in the gospel message. That's what's so ironic about this. Here they are calling Paul a seed-picking bird who's just picking up little bits and pieces of philosophies all over the place and calling it the gospel. Incredibly, 300 years later, completely revolutionized culture and society. Now listen, we need to understand this. Every culture, every people group, no matter how perfect or ideal we think or pretend it is, every culture, listen, every culture, every people group, every city, every town, every neighborhood has its problems, has its issues, has unmet ideas, has dreams and aspirations and political ideas and cultural think tanks, all trying to solve problems. That's what our world is. No matter where you go, we try to solve problems. How do we make things better? How do we we help create a place of safety so people don't get hurt? How do we solve issues that are hurting the society, our city, and its citizens? For example, in our city, there's a housing crisis. There's a transportation crisis. It was no different in the city of Athens. In every environment where people live, there are, there are things that need to be solved. And into this city, into this place that is no different from our city, Paul comes to Athens and he brings the gospel message. He offers an alternative to prominent, dominated ideas within the culture of Athens. He presents it through debate. He's challenged by people he is talking with. But it's interesting, when you get to the end of the chapter, I'm not going to get there today, but when we get to the end of the chapter, people begin to believe the message, and their life begins to change, and their life patterns within the city begins to change the culture. Verse 18 said, he debated with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now these are two major ideas, philosophies that were prevalent in the city of Athens and in Greek culture. Two groups that represented how people really lived within the city. Two groups of people who were trying to formulate life and solve life's problems by these two significant philosophies. And generally speaking, the Stoics were moralists. They had a high moral standard. The Epicureans were relativists. Their life was all about feeling good and living good. For example, the Epicureans believed that when you die, there was nothing. Nothing happened afterwards. If there is a god or gods, they believed, then he was distant and have... Nothing has nothing to do with human beings. 
Nothing happens after death. The meaning of life to the Epicureans was not found in shaping culture or in hearing, having a relationship with a deity. They believed that every person had the right to be whatever they wanted. Remember we talked about last week, remember we talked about last week expressive individualism? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Epicureans. A person is free to do whatever they want. They believe that they should live for pleasure. They believe that they might enjoy life to the fullest because there was nothing available. Because, because life was, was there was nothing available after life that life should be lived to the fullest. Absolutely to the fullest. And that's what was That was the message that was happening in Athens. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, believe that meaning in life was to be good, was to be noble, was to be virtuous, courageous, and strong. They believed that you shouldn't be rattled by life and you shouldn't show weakness in life. The way people should respond to hardship would be with determination and to be firm and don't cry, don't show emotion. That's why today we use the term stoic. It means that a person is cold and non-empathetic and doesn't show real emotion. It comes from this period in time. The problem with stoicism is that it doesn't work because eventually every person has a breakdown of some kind. People wear out. We see that right now in our city. This pandemic has had a huge detrimental effect on the emotional, psychological, and spiritual well-being of people. See, eventually there will come times, there will become episodes, there will come something into, a li- into your life. All of us will experience this where there will come a time where the, the, that little piece of straw will finally break the camel's back. And the reason we are so familiar with that statement is because we know of people. We know that there will be a time in people's lives that will transpire where, where, where things will break down for us. Everyone has flaws. Everyone deals with issues. Everyone is a broken person. None of us is perfectly, absolutely perfect. And there are moments and times in our lives when things begin to break down. And this is where, and this is when, Christianity has its biggest impact. Because when things break down in people's lives, Christianity offers hope. In the middle of brokenness, in the middle when city politicians are trying to figure out how best to solve the issues and solve the problems of humanity and the citizens, Christianity actually says, it comes along and says, nobody is strong enough, nobody is good enough, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory But at the same time, under the same breath, Christianity says when things fall apart, when things don't work out as you thought they would work out, when things are disintegrating, 
in your life, you don't have to be alone. And you don't have to walk through life alone. Interesting enough, the Stoics also had this idea as being moral absolute. They called their moral absolutes logos. And logos means the meaning of life or rational structure behind the universe. So here are these Stokes. Now these are the Epicureans and the Stokes. These are the people that Paul is talking with. He's debating with. These Stokes believed in moral absolutes that if you were wise enough, you could discern what reality was and what was true. And Christian, here's the interesting thing about Christianity. Christianity comes along and says to the Stoics, we agree with you. That's what Paul is saying here. There is indeed meaning to life. There is a structure behind the universe. There is logos. But it's not philosophical. It's personal and relational. The logos is Jesus. So Paul is coming up. This is why it's so important to understand this, this interconnection into culture. This is why it's so important to understand this. Paul comes along and takes the philosophy of the world, of the then known world, and says, you have a logos in your philosophical debate. Here, let me present to you who the logos that you think you know really is. If you want to really know the meaning of life, if you really want to know how to live productively, if you, it's not about contemplating more philosophy. It's about having a personal relationship with the Creator. That's what Christianity proposes. Anyone can have this relationship. Not just the philosophers, not just the educated, not just the city leaders, it's not just for smart people and educated people. It's for everyone. Everyone can experience this relationship with the Creator because the Creator extends His grace and love to everyone. No matter if you're prominent in the city, doesn't matter how educated you are, doesn't matter what your status is, this message, this can be received. This Logos is a personal relationship with the Creator. So when you read this in Acts chapter 17, Paul in Athens discussing with the Epicureans and the Stoics, that's the understanding behind what is truly transpiring there. And look what happens next. They take Paul to the high council, and there's a gathering of the most elite thinkers and the greatest intellectual of the day. They come together, and Paul delivers this incredible, masterful speech to these intellectuals, and he talks to them about a big God, a big God, a bigger God than they could have ever imagined in their lives. Look what it says in verse 22 and verse 23. If you have your Bibles, follow along. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. Talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics. Verse 23. 
For as I was walking along, I saw many shrines, and one of your altars had an inscription on it to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So in this city, there are idols, there are statues, there are various gods and shrines. And as Paul is walking through the city, he is particularly struck by this one shrine that has the inscription on it to an unknown God. And so when Paul is standing before this council in Athens, in essence, he is saying to this council, you have all these idols, you have all these statutes, you have all these shrines in the city, and yet here is this one altar with this inscription which signifies that in all of your searching and all of your intellectual debating, you still have this sense that you are missing something. For you have created this statute in the middle of your city, a statue to an unknown God. In all of your debating, in all of your searching, in all of your quest to satisfy your God, you still personally, council members, you still personally have a nagging sense that there is a God that you have yet not discovered. And Paul says, I'm here to reveal to you who this God is. I am here to show you this God that, that you somehow miss in all of your deliberations, you've somehow missed. Let me describe to you this God that you are searching for. And he goes on to say in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, and verse 25, verse 26, here is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man made of temples and human hands cannot serve as needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every need. Verse 26. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. Friends, here is a description of a big, powerful, massive God, the creator of the universe and this earth, but is also a personal God. Notice what he says in verse 27. His purpose for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So, if you can get this picture in your mind, Paul talking with the Epicureans and the Stoics and trying to understand their philosophies through Socratic reasoning, he brings them to this point where he shows them there is a statute in your city built by human hands that is to an unknown God. I am here now describing who this God is. And what Paul is describing is he is describing a God 
that these people, and sometimes we forget this as well in our culture today, what he is describing is he's describing a God who is bigger than you can ever dream of. And he is describing a God who is closer to you than you can ever imagine. A bigger God and close to us. God is here. God is right next to us. He is next to you. He is personal. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Sometimes we miss that when we live life casually and flippantly and we just go about our business we don't think about the greatness and the closeness of God to us remember I mentioned the Pew research just earlier in that same study they came up with this phrase that people stated that they stated that people have a strong desire in our culture right now to experience moments of wonder like, if you've ever been where a baby was born, there's this moment of sheer wonder and awe, and you marvel at the miracle of birth. And I've noticed on Facebook people, uh, you know, putting on Facebook pictures of nature, a beautiful sunset while they're sitting on a sandy beach, a quaint, quiet lake that's reflective of the scene behind, you know, you see the scene reflected upon the lake. For me, when I, when I do mountaineering and climb to the summit of a mountain, when you're at the top of a summit of a mountain, you suddenly have this incredible view, the vistas below, the distant mountain ranges, the valleys, and you see the waterfalls and the immense trees. There, there's this incredible moment of seeing the beauty of creation. And there's this exhilarating sense that comes over people when you see the magnificence of creations where you have to pause and you sit down and you take in all of the beauty. That moment is called wonder. And people are filled with awe. And what the Pew Research found was that today in our culture right now, people are striving for those moments where they see the wonder and they're filled with awe. And what Paul is saying here in Acts chapter 17, he is saying the moment, the moment that you experience that feeling and you sense the awe of God's power in creation, that moment when you are feeling that sense, in actuality, you are in close proximity to Almighty God. There is this incredible actuality of you coming close into the presence of God because as the scripture we just read about so brilliantly and succinctly stated for us, in that moment, you sense the creator and the power of the creator. And your senses are awakened in a moment of awe. This great God 
the creator of heaven and earth, is drawing close at that moment to you. And that's the description that Paul is making as he is standing in front of the council in Athens. You've created this unknown God trying to seek and fulfill something in your own personal lives, but let me tell you, when you see the sunset, when you see the power of creation, and you behold in awe the greatness of God, let me also make you aware that in the moment that you are experiencing the greatness of God, in that very exact moment, you also experience the closeness of God into your life. Verse 29, we'll wrap up. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who, who this is by raising, from, by raising him from the dead. So what Paul is saying here is there's this unknown statute in the Agora, this unknown God, crafted, crafted by people, in their image, an image made from their own imagination, who decided what God would be like, who decided what God should be in their own lives based on their own desires, their own imagination, their own ideas. And Paul is saying the God that I'm talking about is bigger, more intimate, more wonderful than any other God, any other statute that you have here. And this God is not found when we form another image, or another statue. Instead, you find this God when you choose to follow him. And did you notice that Paul uses a word here that is critical to our Christianity? Here's the word. This is critical to the foundation of our belief system. In verse 30, he says, everyone everywhere to repent. That statement is critical to Christianity. There is a distinct call for everyone to repent. You may say, what does that mean, repent? Repent means to turn. That if you're moving in one direction moving in this pathway, you live by certain philosophies about life, you have these ideas of what your fulfillment and your happiness will be, your joy, your peace, you're walking down this pathway, you're living life, you're moving along this pathway, you're oblivious to a lot of things going on, but you're happy with your life, you're making decisions every day in your life based on the philosophies and values of your life. And then there is a moment where you have an encounter and repent literally means that you pivot, that you literally pivot and you go in the opposite direction that you were going to. And they're specifically pivoting toward Jesus. 
Whereas before you were leading your own personal life and going in a certain direction, now you choose to follow Jesus and to turn and pivot from your own direction and you walk toward what God wants for your life. That's the meaning of repent. repent. You turn from your stoic ideas, your moralism. You turn from your Epicurean ideas, your pleasures and your relativism. And you say, these beliefs, these ideas, these things are not going to bring fulfillment in my life. But when I've encountered Jesus, I now understand that only Jesus can bring ultimate fulfillment in my life. And so therefore, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to turn. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to listen to Jesus. Even if all these other things are pleasurable to me, I am going to go in the opposite direction because I want to pursue the teachings of Jesus first and foremost. That's the teaching of Christianity. It's the foundation of who we are as Christians. It's critical to our understanding as Christians that everyone everywhere is called to repent. And that's what Paul is saying. If you really want to live life and you want to have the issues resolved in your heart, the stuff that is broken in your life, things that maybe are falling apart, It's not chasing after unknown pleasures and becoming more engaged in following rules and becoming more moral. No, 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 no. You pivot and you turn and you follow Jesus. And when you do, you will experience God who is bigger than you've ever imagined and closer than you ever could imagine. And when you pivot, and when you turn, and when you follow him, you can know him when you choose to follow him. That's the message when Paul stood up in the Agora, and when Paul went before the council in Athens. That's what he is proclaiming. When you follow Jesus, you discover freedom that Epicureanism could never deliver. When you follow Jesus, you experience truth that is deeper and more meaningful and more hopeful than anything that Stoism could ever provide for you. So before we take communion today, I close with this. Let me ask you a question before we take communion. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to pivot from? What do you need to turn from? Are there ideas, are there philosophies that you are presently following that need to be abandoned so that you could have a closer relationship with Jesus, that you can experience the closeness of God in your life? What is it in your life that you need to let go of in order to find the fulfillment that only Jesus can bring. When you see, when you wholeheartedly say yes to Jesus, and you pivot, and you follow after him, when that happens and you make that choice, ultimate life, ultimate, everything that you want to discover about life, you will find ultimately when you pivot and follow Jesus 
wholeheartedly. Let's pray together. Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak to us today as we take communion. While we take communion, oh God, I pray that you would just embrace us with your closeness. And if there's anything that we need to repent from, Lord, right now, may we do so, so that we can experience your closeness in our life. May we behold you with wonder and awe, and may we experience the goodness, the grace, and the love that you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Warner, for that amazing message. And as he said, we're now going to enter into a time of communion together. If you're joining us online, then I hope you have your juice and your bread ready. If you're here in person, you would have received your elements as you uh, came in. You just remove the top tab to uh, get your, your wafer, and then the second one will reveal the juice. I'm reading from 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, I've always been squeamish when it comes to blood. Just the sight of it can make me faint. It definitely causes a reaction in me. Well, this verse speaks about the blood of Jesus, and I believe it should cause a reaction in all of us who are believers. There's an old hymn that speaks about the precious blood of the Lamb. Maybe you remember it. It says, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Have you ever thought about why there's such great power and value in the blood of Jesus and why it's so very precious? Well, it's because Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God that died so that we wouldn't have to. It's because of the precious blood of Christ that we are redeemed and forgiven and cleansed from our sin. The blood of Jesus, it speaks of how much we are loved and valued by God. So as we take communion this morning, I want to encourage you to focus on the blood of Jesus and allow yourself to react to it with thanksgiving and gratitude. No matter what you're going through today, we should be able to react to the blood of Jesus that was shed to us with such gratefulness and thankfulness. So examine your heart. Bring your confessions and your needs to him today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 26 says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the juice together. Let's just thank him this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your shed blood. Thank you that you were willing to die on the cross so that we could be redeemed, forgiven, cleansed from our sin. God, help us never to forget what you've done for us. You give us hope. You give us strength. You help us, God, in all of the areas of our lives. And Lord, I think of all those who are here today or are listening online. You know exactly what everyone is going through and experiencing. Lord, I just pray that as they reflect on what you've done for them, they would understand how much you love them and that you would touch each person and meet their needs and help them. I know there are so many right now in our church family that are experiencing illnesses in their body, God, and I just pray that you would heal and touch each one that needs that healing touch from you, God. Lord, we just thank you once again, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship God together. things have passed away and all things have stayed the same your constant grace remains the cornerstone things that we thought were dead
Thank you so much for joining us for service. Uh, this is where we let you go free. You guys in the building, you can uh, turn to a neighbor, say say hi, socially distanced and with a mask on. And at home, uh, have a great Sunday. May God bless you all.